Well, this morning, we have the privilege of wrapping up our little mini-series on the book of Philemon, and so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there one last time together, and uh, we're going to be looking at the last section of this letter, Philemon, starting in verse 17 through verse 25. By the way, if you are just joining us this morning or maybe just the last couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to go on our website, lakesidebiblechurch.org, and uh, you can hear all these messages. It's, uh, I think, a very helpful series overall. There's just three messages uh, we've already preached on this, and uh, this will be the fourth in this series. And so I want to encourage you, just so you kind of get the, uh, the big picture of this book and you get the, the, the full series in your mind and your heart, uh, because there's no more vital subject matter than what's addressed here, and that is forgiveness. And uh, it's, it's a subject so important to God that he devoted one entire book in his word to it. And it's this letter of Paul to Philemon. And so let's uh, begin reading again in verse 17, where we left off last time. Paul wrote, If then you regard me a partner, accept him, Onesimus, as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we thank you for your precious and powerful word. And we look forward with great anticipation this morning to what you want to do by your spirit, through your word, in our hearts, and in our lives. Though we know that your word never goes forth without accomplishing the purposes for which you send it. And so we ask that you would make us receptive and responsive today to what you have to say to us. Lord, that each of us would be able to take away some very specific application for our lives from these verses that we're going to look at this morning. We, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it doesn't need to be said, but we live in a sinful world filled with sinful people. Each of us is a sinner surrounded by other sinners. And all of us are constantly sinning against each other. Others are sinning against us, and we are sinning against others on a regular basis. And that's why there's so much anger and so much bitterness and strife and fighting and slander and malice and revenge in the world. And these are the kinds of things, anger and bitterness and strife and revenge, these, these are the kinds of things that destroy people's lives. The question is, how can we possibly survive in this sinful world with this wicked environment without destroying others or being destroyed ourselves? Well, it really comes down to one word, and that's forgiveness. And forgiveness is simply surrendering our right to hurt others for hurting us, or at least what we consider to be a right. 
Forgiveness is refusing to seek revenge. It's refusing to get even. And see, our culture glamorizes and and glorifies heroes who seek revenge for wrongs done to them. Some of the most popular movies in recent years are are these epic dramas that that are all about a, a man out for revenge. And we cheer him on when he finally gets that revenge, when he finally gets even, whether it's Braveheart or The Gladiator or The Patriot or The Count of Monte Cristo. And according to our modern media, freedom is found when you finally get even with a person who sinned against you, who wronged you. And, and you're able to die in peace knowing justice was done. It seems like all these, these heroic characters, they end up dying at the end, right? But they die in peace knowing that they got revenge, you know, that justice was done. Well, according to the scriptures, it's the exact opposite. That true freedom is found in forgiving those who wrong you, not getting even with them. I mean, you just have to look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was wronged more than any of us will ever be wronged. When he was hanging on the cross, he wasn't up there contemplating how he could get revenge. He wasn't thinking thoughts of, you know, I'm just going to send all these people to hell. Then I'll, then I'll feel justice, right? What did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, one of the first deacons in the early church in Acts chapter 7, said the same thing while he was being stoned. He said, Father, forgive them. He wasn't trying to get even. And the the example of Jesus, the example of Stephen, I think stand in stark contrast to the the Mel Gibson and the the Russell Crowe characters that we've fallen in love with. And what is rarely portrayed in in these stories of revenge are the awful consequences of refusing to forgive others. And I think what what we forget is that it's a sin to not forgive others of their sin. It's a sin to not forgive others of their sin. And like every other sin, there are consequences when we refuse to forgive. And I just wrote down a a few of these consequences of failing to forgive. I think when we fail to forgive you bring at least, or you experience at least five unpleasant results. First of all, unforgiveness imprisons you in the past. Unforgiveness imprisons you in the past. And we just got done studying Colossians and uh, the, the whole issue of putting off your old man and putting on the new man. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 7, you once walked, you once formally lived a certain way, but now you should put all those things aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with his evil practices. So, those, so as those who've been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So some of us are still living in the past, right? Like we used to before we got saved. We we dwell on the wrongs done to us. And what that does is it just kind of keeps that sore open and it keeps the pain alive. And the wound never gets healed. It's like every time you you, you think about it again, it's like you rip the scab off uh, and make it a fresh wound. And when you fail to forgive someone, it's it's like you lock them up in a prison and throw away the key. You're like, I ain't letting you out of there. That's where you deserve. I'm going to keep you over there locked up in a little cell, and I'm not letting you out. 
then what we fail to realize is that when we lock someone else up in a cell because we refuse to forgive them, we lock ourselves up in the cell right next to them. We're imprisoned. We imprison ourselves. And yet when you forgive, it opens the prison doors and releases not only the other person, but it releases you and sets you free from the past. Someone wrote this, the one who refuses mercy puts himself in prison. He's locked up in a past where he cannot leave his hurt behind. His grievance is like a ball and chain around his ankle. You may know all too well what that's like. You may have drugged that ball and chain in here this morning. That you've got some unforgiveness in your heart towards one of your family members or maybe another member of this, of this body, of this church. And it's just, it's just weighting you down. It's, in, it's in imprisoning you in the past. And so unforgiveness imprisons you in the past. Secondly, unforgiveness infects your heart with bitterness. It infects your heart with bitterness. And in the next book, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the writer says this, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Listen, when you dwell on past offenses, it produces nothing but anger and resentment. And the longer you, you, you dwell on the sins committed against you, the, the more bitter you become. And, and bitterness just distorts your entire outlook on life, and it, it robs you of, of joy and peace. You know, I find this to be true in, in some of the marriage counseling that I have the opportunity to do, that, that a couple gets so, so at odds with one another that they've just completely lost their joy, they've completely lost the peace and the rest and, and really the enjoyment and the f- f- fulfillment of their marriage. And, and, and you ask them what, what's going on, and all they can do is, is, is list all the bad things that the other person has done or, or is doing. It's like oh, that's all they can think of. And they've kept this list of wrongs, not just from last night or last week or last month, but we're, we're talking like 10 years ago. They're still carrying with them all these grievances and all these bitter resentments. And, and really, they're experiencing the consequences of, of not forgiving each other. And so one of the uh, homework assignments I'll often give is, listen, I want you to make a new list, okay? You need to get rid of that. You're, you're so focused on the list of things that, that have been done against you. I want you to think about all the good things about your spouse. Because apparently, if, if all you could think about was these bad things, you would have never married them. So you married them one time, whether it was a year ago or 25 years ago, and there was a lot of things you liked about that person. And you forgot them. Your your whole perspective is skewed. And I want you to focus again on what are are the things you like about this person? What are they doing right? How do they minister to you? How do they bring you pleasure and and, and make you happy? And so unforgiveness, it just infects your heart with bitterness. Thirdly, unforgiveness invites Satan into your life. Unforgiveness invites Satan into your life. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. One of Satan's schemes is to create division within the body of Christ, within a marriage, within a family. And, and he loves to do that. And the way he does that is he, is, is he, he keeps you from being being forgiving. And so what Paul was saying is, hey, I was quick to forgive 
the church in Corinth had all sorts of issues and all sorts of problems, and there were things that Paul needed to forgive them for, and they needed to forgive Paul for. Apparently, it was forgiveness that needed to be taken place here. And so he says, man, we, we wanted to make sure we forgave so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Satan takes advantage of the fact that you're unwilling to forgive. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 is, is very specific about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 it says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't go to bed mad, right? Don't, don't turn off the lights with unresolved conflict. He says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Listen, when you go to bed mad, when you go to bed without resolving issues in your marriage or resolving issues in your family, you, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for failure. Because what you're doing is you're, you're, you're kind of opening the door even just a little bit for Satan to get his foot in the door in your marriage and in your life. And he's able to set up a beachhead, if you will, in your life where he can launch attacks on you and your marriage, your family. And so unforgiveness invites Satan into your life. It gives him access to your life. He takes advantage of that. Listen, Satan doesn't need any help, okay? So make sure you forgive or all you're doing is helping Satan out to destroy your life. Number four, unforgiveness inhibits your relationship with God. Unforgiveness inhibits your relationship with God. And we already went over these verses, but I just want to remind you of them in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus defined in more detail, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, but if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. The point being is that when you refuse to forgive others, it inhibits your relationship with God because you come before God to claim that promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come and say, Lord, I, I messed up. Would you forgive me? And he's looking down at us and saying, why would I forgive you? Because you're not willing to forgive them. You, you want forgiveness from me, but you're not willing to offer forgiveness to them. It hinders your fellowship, your relationship with God. And then finally, unforgiveness impedes your worship. Unforgiveness impedes or hinders your worship. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, in other words, you're going before the Lord to worship him, and there remember that your brother has something against you, that you're at odd with your brother, you're, you're, you got cross-threaded with your brother, uh, your sister, and, and something's not right. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So Jesus instructed us that, that we can't think that we can come in into the, the presence of the Lord and have a tremendous worship experience with him when we're not right with our husband or wife or our family members or our parents or another brother and sister in our church. It's just not. He says, listen, leave your offering there and go make it right. And then come and worship. Some of you may be here this morning trying to, you know, you're trying it. I mean, you're trying to make it happen and you're here to worship and it's just, it's just not happening. And you're just kind of going through the motions. And it, and it may be because you have not followed this command that you're, you know that somebody has something against you or you have something against someone else and you're refusing to go and make it right. I promise you, if you go and make that right this week, you're going to come back next Sunday and this is going to be a totally different experience. Because you will be, you'll be unimpeded in your worship. 
And so these are just some of the negative consequences that uh, happen when we refuse to forgive. And we need to avoid these consequences. In order to do that, we just need to let go of the past. We just need to get over some stuff. Or as my mom has, has, has been saying the last few years, I kind of just picked this up from her. I'm still learning from my mom. She's talking about, you know, stop going through life looking in your rearview mirror. Seems like a lot of people, that's just the way they live. The, the whole, their whole, they're looking in the rearview mirror. They're looking, they're looking at, at what's happened in the past, and they just can't get past that. And their whole focus is on their rear, what's going on behind them instead of what's out in front of them. And the Bible says, forget what lies behind and press on towards what lies ahead. And I love some, some, some of the Christian movies that have really exemplified this, this letting go, giving it up, getting over it, getting past it. Because you're only hurting yourself. The, the re- most recent one was Courageous, right? And that one black character in that movie was struggling with bitterness towards his father. And his dad was just, just a deadbeat dad and never, never was there for him. And he just carried around this bitterness and this frustration and this anger. And finally, in one scene, he's there at, at his father's grave and, and, and just praying and, and, and basically left a little note. And it was just, you know, and I'm done. I'm, bun- I'm done being bitter. I'm, I'm, I'm forgiving you, dad for everything you weren't, right? And just moving on, getting past it. Another movie you may have watched, we have it in our little DVD section here in the hallway called The Climb. It's a great gospel-focused movie, but this one guy held on to this bitterness towards his dad, and, and, and they got, got to the top of this, movie, this mountain, and he was yelling at his dad saying, see, dad, I can do it. And, and, and all of a sudden, the picture that he was holding that he had kept in his wallet of his dad that he used to get out and just yell at and get mad at blew away. And he tried to grab it, and the other guy grabbed him and said, just let it go. Let it go. It's a great picture of, man, you just got to get past some stuff, get over some stuff. I wrote down this quote from one of the commentaries that I was reading. I think it was 33,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean when I was reading it, too. So this is a special quote. He says, if I mean to be a real Christian and not just a spiritual dabbler, I will have to swallow my pride in all sorts of ways. You want to be a real Christian. You're going to have to get over some stuff. And and it really just comes down to to dying to yourself and swallowing your pride. He said this might include embracing someone who has wronged you. At the end of the day, it is right that the servants of a pardoning God should forgive. Nursing grudges, cherishing slights, and keeping old hatreds warm is no way of life for someone who knows his own acceptance with God was only made possible because of the blood shed for him at Calvary. And therein lies the secret, I believe, to being a forgiving person. You want to be a forgiving person? Just stay focused on your sin. Just stay focused on your sin. And you realize how much God has forgiven you and how much he continues to forgive you every day. And Ephesians 4.32 will, will resonate in your heart where it says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. By the way, this was the appeal, the essence of the appeal that Paul made to Philemon here in this letter. And he not only appealed to Philemon in this letter, but in Ephesians 4.32, he appealed to every Christian that everything that we see in the book of Philemon applies not just to Philemon, it applies to us too, that all of us need to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And I think there's no better place 
in all of Scripture where this principle of forgiving others as we've been forgiven, uh, that, that it's more powerfully portrayed than in this letter, Paul's letter to Philemon. And Paul's humble, gracious request to his brother Philemon to forgive his runaway slave Onesimus vividly illustrates the practical commands that are all over Scripture that we need to forgive others. But what's more, and and what we're going to see this this morning, is that this story of Philemon and Onesimus beautifully illustrates the theological concepts which are found throughout the Bible of how God has forgiven us. And so we've we've noticed that that, that Paul's appeal is, is, is notably tactful. We've been impressed by how tactful he was in approaching this very difficult scenario. And not only was it notably tactful, it was subtly theological. Most people wouldn't think of of, of, of theology, when they think of Philemon, it's just a simple personal letter. It's just kind of real down to earth. It's, it's simple. It doesn't have a lot of deep concepts in it, but it, it's subtly theological. And here in this final portion, especially of this letter, Paul, I believe, purposely used language that was intended to remind Philemon about how God had forgiven him. That when he heard or when he read this letter, I think Paul intended for for Philemon to stop and go, now that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? Where have I heard this language before? And I think Paul expected Philemon to recognize the the familiar sounds of salvation in his appeal to forgive Onesimus. Because in Paul's intercession on behalf of Onesimus, really we have a veiled analogy of Christ's intercession on our behalf by paying the debt we owe as sinners who've run away from God. We're going to see that as we climax the message this morning. But just to review quickly, we had a little outline that we used for the book of Philemon. Verses 1 through 7, we called Paul's praise of Philemon. Verses 8 through 16, Paul's plea to Philemon. And then verses 17 to 25, what we're going to look at this morning is Paul's pledge to Philemon. And so essentially in verses 1 through 7, We saw how Paul commended Philemon for his godly character, which gave him confidence that he could appeal to him to welcome back his runaway slave with open arms. And so we saw some characteristics of a forgiving person. In order to be a forgiving person, you had to be like Philemon. And then in verses 8 through 16, last time we saw how Paul appealed to him specifically to forgive Onesimus. And this, this appeal was really broken up into five separate appeals that we need to understand to forgive others in a Christ-like way. Now, here in verses 17 to 25, I think Paul was providing some motivation for Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And if you grabbed an outline in the back as you walked in, you'll see that I've written down here seven motivations or seven motives for forgiving others. There's Christ's mediation, there's Christ's imputation, there's Paul's stimulation, Paul's anticipation, his emancipation, others' connection, and God's provision. And we're going to see how all these things worked, I think, to provide incentive to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And I'm really playing off some words here that are straight out of the text. In verse 17, there's the word receive or accept. In verses 18 and 19, there's the word repay. Verse 20, there's the word refresh. Verse 21 is the idea of reassurance. 
Verse 22 talks about Paul's imminent release from prison. Verses 23 and 24 talk about the relationships that Paul and Philemon shared with other like-minded brothers. And then verse 25, that closing benediction, is all about reliance. What are we going to depend on, right, to help us to be the kind of forgiving people that Paul is appealing to us to be? So let's look at these seven motives this morning quickly one at a time. First of all is Christ's mediation. Verse 17, he says, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. So Paul shared a, a special bond with, with Philemon. They, they had shared many experiences together. They possessed a common love for Christ and for one another. And so he, he appeals to him as a partner. He says, listen, if you regard me as a partner, and he knew he did, he said, accept him or receive him as you would me. We receive him like a beloved brother. Give him a royal welcome. Roll out the red carpet. Kill the fatted calf. So Paul was asking Philemon to, to take Onesimus back with the same graciousness and generosity and, and hospitality which he would have received Paul himself. Paul knew when he showed back up in Colossae that he was going to get the royal welcome. And he says, I, I want you to do the same for our brother Onesimus. And that word receive there in verse 17 literally means to receive into one's family. It's, it's a slave entering his master's family. And so this is, again, a, a similar statement here. This receive him as you would me or accept him as you would me. This is, a, this is very similar to how Christ appeals to the Father as our advocate, as our mediator, to receive us like he would receive him, right? We are received by God with the same graciousness as he would receive his own son. We are, we are co-heirs with Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when you think about this phrase, accept him as you would me, you could hear those words coming out of the mouth of Christ, couldn't you? Speaking to the Father. Father, accept them, right, as you would me. So Christ is our advocate. He's our mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. I think also, just historically, there was a, 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 excuse me, a dynamic going on here, and it's, it was called the advocacy clause in Roman law. We talked about this in the first message, that uh, runaway slaves could return to their masters and be protected if they first went to their master's friend and, and they secured support for their cause. And so the friend became an advocate or a mediator. There are even some instances that are recorded where the master not only accepted the slave back, but adopted the slave into his own family. And so Paul here was serving as Onesimus' advocate, his mediator, appealing to Philemon for grace and understanding. And so Paul was interceding on behalf of Onesimus. This, this letter in itself was an act of intercession. And so there's an analogy here, a picture of redemption, of salvation. Philemon represents God the Father. Paul symbolizes the Son and Onesimus, the repentant sinner. And so Paul, like Christ, appeals to the Father on behalf of the repentant sinner. The Father receives us like he would receive his own son. We are no longer slaves, but we are sons in Christ. And so that's the first motive here is Christ's mediation. Secondly, is Christ's imputation. Christ's imputation. Notice verse 18. 
But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. So Onesimus had not only run away, we know that, but what's implied here is that he had also stolen something, whether it was money or some valuable property from his master as he left, probably to finance his flight. And so he's not only a fugitive, but he was also a thief who needed to make restitution. And so Paul knew that uh, Onesimus had no means to pay back what he owed, and so he took on Onesimus' debt, even though he was innocent. He acted like he had committed Onesimus' crime, and he willingly assumed his debt. And he says, he said, charge this to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. In other words, um, Normally, Paul would write through a a secretary or an amanuensis, as it was called, and he would dictate his letters, but apparently he took the pen from this guy now and he he finished this letter in his own hand, or maybe he wrote this entire letter in his own hand. But the point is, this was was his mark that that he could be trusted, right, to, to, to follow through on his word and that he had the ability to pay. He said, I'll repay it. So this was kind of like an ancient IOU. And what we see here, when it says, charge that to my account, again, we see the doctrine of imputation. You say, what's that? Well, it's simply to impute means to put on someone else's account. And so when Jesus died on the cross, our sins were put on his account. They were credited to him. God treated Jesus like he lived our life. And when we trust Christ as Lord and Savior, he, God treats us like we live Jesus' life. In other words, his righteousness, his perfection is credited to our account. And we see this beautifully stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God takes our sin, credits to Christ's account, and takes Christ's righteousness and credits, to, or excuse me, our sin and credits to his account and takes his righteousness and credits to our account. There's this great exchange. And again, you can hear Jesus saying, charge that to my account, right? Take that guy's sin, that girl's sin, charge it to my account. Put it on me. In Colossians, we just learned how Christ paid the debt for us on the cross. In Colossians 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's as if Christ went down the death row, and we were all on death row, and we all had our, our sins, our crimes, listed on a piece of paper above our door, and he took all those, and he took them, and he nailed them to the cross. And he died for us. He, he took the penalty, the payment, for our sin. And so our debt as sinners was paid for by Christ's redemptive work on the cross. Notice what he says here, kind of in a parenthetical statement He says, oh, by the way, not to mention to you, Philemon, that you owe to me even your own self as well. What did he mean by that? Well, I think that's just a simple reference to the fact that Paul most likely led Philemon to Christ, that he owed his salvation to Paul. 
He had heard the gospel and repented and received Christ by faith through Paul's ministry. And so Paul was basically saying, listen, you owe me one, man. You owe me one. You wouldn't be a believer if it wasn't for me. So he reminded Philemon how how he was once burdened with with this great spiritual debt that was paid for by Jesus' death and being delivered from that debt of sin and death and hell was far greater than being delivered from this financial obligation that Onesimus had. And so Philemon owed far more to Paul and Christ than Onesimus owed Philemon. And that's always the case, isn't it true? I mean, there there is no greater debt than what you owe to Jesus Christ. And yet he releases you, and he tells you to do the same with other people, to release them from the debt that they owe you. By the way, if you remember, we mentioned this at the, at the start of this series, that Philemon had the right, he had the right under Roman law to have Onesimus flogged, imprisoned, or even beheaded for running away. And so Paul is asking him, hey, Put his sin on me. Charge it to my account. Again, a beautiful picture of Christ's imputation. Then we see in verse 20, Paul's stimulation. Notice he says, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. We know that that Philemon was a very refreshing person. In verse 7, He says, for I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. He had a reputation for just being the kind of guy you want to be around, just always refreshing to to other people's souls. He had a a huge heart of of generosity and hospitality and and just wanted wanted to bless others. And so Paul wanted to share in that refreshment. He says, let me benefit from you. Refresh my heart in Christ. You've been a blessing and a refreshment to all these other people. I want want to experience that same thing in my life. And so Paul desired Philemon to minister to him by giving Onesimus the proper treatment, the the forgiveness that he was appealing for. And again, this is is an important, I think, motive for forgiveness, to forgive people, that, that believers are encouraged and edified when we forgive I mean, it's refreshing. First of all, if, if, if you forgive me, that's refreshing to me. If I forgive you, hopefully that's refreshing to you. It's, it's refreshing to one another when we forgive one another. But it's also refreshing when you hear stories of forgiveness. And you hear about people that got side with you, husbands and wives that were on the verge of divorce, and they, they learned how to forgive one another. And, and it's refreshing to hear that story, Right? Or to hear about two brothers in a church that were sideways with one another and, 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 and man, they were at odds with one another and they repented and they forgave one another and they were reconciled. And that's refreshing to hear those kinds of stories. And so we need to be motivated out of a desire to refresh one another. And then we have Paul's anticipation in verse 21. Notice this. He says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. It's interesting to think about the reputation that we all have developed or are in the process of developing, right? I mean, Philemon had developed a reputation for being gracious and generous and godly. I mean, here was a, Paul knew the character of of his friend that he strived for spiritual excellence. He wanted to be pleasing to the Lord. He wanted to honor God in all of his ways. He did everything for Christ's sake, verses five and six. I mean, would, would Paul be able to say that about you? 
I have confidence, man, that you have a reputation for obedience. That if you know, if God says it, you do it. I, I just know you. And so I, I've come, in fact, you, you go above and beyond the call of duty. And I think that's what Paul was, was confident, that his friend would do, do even more than what he was asking him to do, and that, that he'd go above and beyond the call of duty, whether that was canceling the debt, saying, hey, Paul, don't worry about it, man. I have plenty. The Lord's provided my needs. Don't worry about paying that back. Even though he could have said, yeah, thanks, Paul. I appreciate that. I could use the extra money right now. Maybe, maybe he was assuming that he would return Phile- or Onesimus to him in Rome. Remember, Paul said, I, I really didn't want to send him back because he's been, become so helpful, so useful to me as a, as a personal assistant while I'm here under house arrest. Maybe he was, he was thinking that, that Onesimus or, or Philemon might send him back. Or I don't think it would have surprised Paul at all if Philemon just set him free. Said, you're free, man. How could I keep you a slave? You're my brother in Christ. And just released him. I think one of the most challenging parts of the Sermon on the Mount or Sermon on the Plain, there's some discussion on what it was, but in Luke chapter 6, Jesus addresses how we should relate to our enemies. And he's talking about how his followers should um, respond to their enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I mean, that sounds like a lot more than just, you know what? God tells me to love them, but it doesn't, doesn't mean I have to like them. I mean, some of, the, some of us just settle for that, right? God tells me I gotta love them, but it doesn't mean I have to like them. And you do whatever you can to avoid certain people, right? He says, no, no, no. He says, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of me, you're to love your enemies. What does that look like? Do good to those who hate you. So those people who do mean things to you, you do nice things to them. You go out of your way to be kind to them. Bless those who curse you. So they say mean things to you, you say nice things to them. They talk bad about you to others, you talk, great, you talk well of them to others. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do you have your enemies on your prayer list? Are you regularly praying for those people that just annoy you, who seem to be out to get you, who you don't get along with? Do you have them on your prayer list? Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from, from him either. That's going the extra mile, right? It's going above and beyond what you need to do. Why do you do that? Verse 35, but love your enemies. Do good, expect, lend, expecting nothing in return. You do all this without any expectation. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, you will prove that you're a child of God. Because only God's kids can love that way. The world can't love that way. The world puts limits on its love. God's children don't. He says, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Listen, we are never more like God than when we forgive. He's doing it all the time. And we need to learn to do it all the time. And again, it's not just just putting up with your enemy, but going beyond that. Listen, you know, you may have, I'm just making stuff up now. You might have an obnoxious neighbor, Ben, just, just, just constantly you know, doing stuff, saying stuff. Why don't you bake them a cake this week? 
Baker, okay, bring, bring something. Go, go buy her some at the store and, and stop by and give it to her. And they'll be like, I don't get it. They, they won't get it. But, it, but you're, you're getting it because you're understanding, right, what the Bible says to go above and beyond the call of duty. I read somewhere a story about a missionary kid who lost her parents during World War II when the Japanese raided or invaded the Philippines and they murdered her parents who were missionaries. She was back in the States and so she was struggling with obviously being bitter towards the Japanese and what they had done to her family and killing her, her mom and dad. These innocent missionaries had nothing to do with the war. And so she knew that this was gonna kill her if she allowed this root of bitterness to grow in her heart and so you know what she did? She went and began serving at a Japanese internment camp here in the States and began, began serving the people that had killed her parents. And they couldn't understand why she would do that. But she said, this is what Christ would do. And I know if I don't do this, that all I'm gonna do is get bitter and it's gonna hurt me. So again, this is Paul's anticipation. He, was, he was, had assurance that, that Philemon was just gonna not only do what he told him to do, but then even more. And then we've got Paul's emancipation, number five, verse 22. Notice, at the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I'll be given to you. Paul's like, hey, Philemon, by the way, get the guest room ready, because I'm fixing to use it, <laughs> okay? I'm getting ready. I, I just get the sense I'm, I'm going to be released. You know why? Because you're praying. And I know everybody in the church in Colossae and in, those, in that tri-city area, they're all praying for my release from prison, so I'm planning on coming. So get the guest, guest room ready. For I hope that through your prayers I'll be given to you. Now this is again, I think a, a kind of a, a backdoor way of, of motivating Philemon. If he knew that it was very likely that he'd be seeing Paul face to face within a few weeks or a few months, right? And he didn't want to show up and, and uh, Paul find Onesimus, you know, in the doghouse that Philemon never forgave him, didn't do what he told him to do. So the fact that he knew he was going to be with Paul here soon, potentially, he wanted to do everything that Paul said and then some. And then you've got number six, other's connection. Other's connection. And in verses 23 through 24, Paul mentions some of his friends, his associates who who had a mutual friendship and relationship with, with Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. These should all sound familiar, these names, because they were all mentioned at the end of the letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. Epaphras, as you remember, was the founder and pastor of the church in Colossae who had gone to Rome to report to Paul about the heresy that was infiltrating the church and get advice to how to deal with it. Mark was the young man who originally had abandoned Paul um, on this first missionary journey, but now had been forgiven, been restored, and it was very useful to him. Aristarchus was a, a Thessalonian who accompanied Paul to Jerusalem and Rome, went through some of the most difficult trials, uh, the, the ride in Ephesus, the shipwreck on the Mediterranean. Demas, sad Scenario At this time, he was following the Lord, but later on in 2 Timothy 4.10, it says that he departed because he loved the world, so he, he was a deserter. Um, he started well, but he ended bad. And then, of course, you've got Luke, who was Paul's beloved physician and friend, who accompanied him wherever he went. We said it was helpful for Paul 
to have a doctor following around. He seemed to get himself into all sorts of trouble, right? Got stoned. It seems like every city he went, so it'd be kind of helpful to have a doctor to patch you up, keep you up and running. So that was Luke. But what, the, what is the point here? The, 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 the mention of these friends, these, 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 um, these associates. I, I don't know about you, but there are times when I think about, when I'm being tempted to sin, and one of the things that motivates me not to do it is I think about what, is, what are other people going to think? You say, well, that's kind of a fleshly motive. Well, listen, I'll take any motive I get sometimes. I'm in, being tempted, right? I wish I could say the only, every time I, I resist temptation is because I just love Christ so much and I hate sin so much. Sometimes it's the safe face. I'll be honest, it's the safe face. And I think, you know, man, what, 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 what will Adam think if I confess to him that I did this or said this? What will Blake think? We get together every week and we talk about our sin and our temptations and, and how we did that week. And man, I don't want to, I don't want to have to share that I blew it. I often think, well, what would happen if, if word got out that, you know, to all the guys I went to seminary with, that I, that I have these relationships with around the world from New Zealand to Australia to, you know, India to, you know, all over the United States, what, what would they think if they got word, you know, the word traveled that, you know, Ken was unfaithful to his wife or, or Ken defected from the faith, he started to teach some, some false teaching of some, what would they think? See, the point is that I think, our friends and associates, we, we need to think about how our sin affects them. Because guess what? Your sin affects everyone in your life. It doesn't just affect you. And so he had some, he, who's part of this, this bond of brothers, if you will, that he wanted to, he was appealing, I think, to, to Philemon to, to maintain the standard of these, this bond of brothers who were faithfully pursuing hard after Christ. And part of that is, is, is forgiving people who wrong you. And then finally, the, the last motivation here is, is God's provision. Verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is very common um, in all of Paul's 13 letters. He, he ends with a, a kind of a one-sentence benediction, similar to this one, but always emphasizing and magnifying God's grace. This was kind of like his signature, if you will. His signature statement, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. And I think the reason why Paul always reminded people of God's grace is because it was God's grace that not only made salvation possible, which all of his letters highlight salvation, right? So it's not only the grace of God, the grace of God, it makes salvation possible, but also God's grace is what makes everything else possible that he writes about. All the commands and the exhortations and the things he exhorts people to do. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who first said, Receive him as you would me. Charge that to my account. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think, again, this is a subtle reminder here that, that the one who exemplified forgiveness is also the one who empowers us to be able to forgive others like he's forgiven us. And so Paul knew that what he was asking Philemon to do wasn't just hard. Sometimes we get it wrong. We, we think, well, you know, man, it's just so hard to forgive. It's not hard to forgive. It's impossible to forgive in and of ourselves, to do it in the flesh. Why? Because our flesh doesn't naturally seek to forgive, but to what? To get even, to get revenge. And the only way that Philemon would be able to forgive Onesimus the way Paul was appealing to him to do was through the grace of 
that God provided him through Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. Listen, some of you have been maybe trying really hard to forgive somebody for something they did against you, whether it was something that was done in the past and, and it's just so hurtful. You just have, you've tried, tried for years to get over it, but you, it just still plagues you and it's just like it happened yesterday. Well, I would submit to you that maybe you're trying to do it in your own strength. You're trying to overcome it in your own strength and, and it's just not hard to forgive. It's impossible to forgive apart from the grace of God. And so we need to rely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as he said, it needs to be with your spirit. May the grace of God be with you, Philemon, because I know you can't do this on your own. So I'm, I, I'm asking, I'm praying that the grace of the Lord would be with you and help you to receive Onesimus back and to forgive him just like you've been forgiven. Well, we don't know for sure whatever happened with Philemon and Onesimus if Philemon forgave him, we can assume that he did, right? Whether he freed him, sent him back to Rome to minister to Paul. It's all interesting to consider. But we do get a little hint from church history. And I think it's uh, very telling that 50 years later, when one of the church fathers named Ignatius was being transported from Antioch to Rome to be executed, he wrote letters to, to various churches. And, and in his letter to the church in Ephesus, he praised their bishop named, guess who? Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a common name in that day. It could have been another Onesimus. But it is interesting that he used the same play on words regarding his name that Paul did here in, the letter to, in his letter to Philemon. The whole idea about being useful that's what Onesimus meant. And so could it be that this runaway slave who had been born again became the leader of the church in Ephesus? How cool is that? And Chuck Swindoll, I think, says it well. He said, if this is true, he may also have been instrumental in getting this letter of Paul's included in the canon. That's why we have Philemon in the Bible. Letting the world know how a useless runaway slave became useful through the transforming power of the cross. I mean, this is the gospel according to Philemon. Paul interceding for Onesimus, just like Christ interceded on the cross for spiritual fugitives like you and spiritual fugitives like me. See, all of us were once a fugitive. We are Onesimus, all of us are. We're all enslaved to sin through Adam's fall. We're running away from God. We're following after our own ways, doing our own thing. And our guilt is great and, and our penalty was severe and the sentence of death hung over our heads. We deserved death and hell. And yet Christ mediated on our behalf and he said, put that on my account. Put his sin, put her sin on my account. Receive her, receive him as you would receive me. And so Christ paid our debt that we owe to the Father with his own blood on the cross and we have been set free. We've been liberated from sin and death and hell. And more than that, we've been embraced by the Father's love and adopted into his family. We're no longer slaves. It says in Galatians, but we're, now we're sons and daughters. Beloved, that's grace. 
That's grace. And because we have been shown grace, we need to show grace towards others. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture, this illustration of forgiveness, not only of how one brother can forgive another brother, but ultimately how you have forgiven us in Christ. And Lord, we know that apart from understanding the gospel and not having embraced the gospel, Lord, it's impossible to forgive. How can we forgive others when we have yet to be forgiven? And so I pray for anyone here this morning who has yet to receive forgiveness in Christ, Lord, that they would think first and foremost about their forgiveness, that they need to be forgiven for their sin, and that you would help them to understand that Christ serves as that mediator, that intercessor who who stands between you and them and shields you from your wrath against their sin through his death on the cross that they would repent of their sin and they would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, that we would be always mindful of our sin and the great debt that we owed to you. It was an unpayable debt, and yet Christ so graciously forgave us. Lord, that we would so graciously and quickly forgive others. Lord, that we would never be so stingy Lord, as those who have been recipients of grace to withhold grace from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, make us a forgiving people. Make us forgiving husbands, forgiving wives, forgiving parents, forgiving children, forgiving brothers and sisters, forgiving Christians. Lord, a forgiving church. Lord, that we might be a great witness for you to this lost and dying world who needs forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.